Well, last Sunday was very exciting. We had the whole church together for One Faith Sunday. There was this wonderful feeling of harmony permeating the church, a definite sense that the risen Christ was with us and among us. There was joy about the healing we have experienced over the last few months and excitement about where we are headed in the months to come. It was almost like Easter Sunday all over again with a, a full sanctuary and the atmosphere all abuzz. We got perhaps a little taste of what it was like for the disciples when Jesus first presented himself alive to them and said to them, in the midst of their confusion and their fear, said to them, peace be with you. That sense that all is well because Christ is alive and he is Lord and he is here. But at some point, the special event comes to an end. The excitement and the energy of the disciples' Sunday evening meeting with Jesus eventually gave way to Monday morning. And they, like we sometimes, were left asking themselves, now what? That is where John chapter 21 comes in. John 21 is the what now chapter of the gospel. It almost reads like it was tacked on after the fact. Some Bible scholars believe that John 21 was not written by the same author as the rest of the gospel, but was added later by one of his followers. It's easy to understand why someone might think that. The end of chapter 20 sure does sound like the end of the gospel. You have the story that we read last week with Jesus presenting himself alive to Thomas and proclaiming to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. And then the chapter closes out with these words. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. You can easily imagine the words, the end. And there you have it, the full gospel, complete with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, even some concluding words about why the gospel was written down. But then it keeps going. You have this whole other chapter, beginning with the words, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples. Even if you assume that this chapter was added on later, after the gospel was already finished, it's not necessary to posit a different author, John did, according to tradition, live to a ripe old age. This chapter could well have been written almost at the end of the century and still have been written by John. It seems to me he wrote this chapter at a point in time when the entire church was wrestling with this question of, now what? John had already grown old. Peter had already been martyred for his faith. So had John's brother James and many other disciples. The temple in Jerusalem had already been destroyed. Believers in Jesus had already been forced out of the synagogues. Christianity was becoming its own religion, separated from the Jewish faith it had grown out of. The church was spreading all around the known world. People from all echelons of society were believing in Jesus and turning to the way. The original ending of the gospel said it had been written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. People who had received that message were now saying, okay, we've done that, what now? 
We've left our old ways of life. We've put our faith in Jesus. We've experienced the excitement of new life and the joy of salvation. Now what? John chapter 21 seems to be addressed specifically to that question. John realized there was more to the story that needed to be shared. There were some things that happened following the resurrection that that would be beneficial for later generations of Christians asking themselves, now what? Because as it turns out, even the first disciples had gone through a moment of trying to figure out the answer to that question themselves. The chapter begins after these things. After these things, that's not terribly helpful Uh, for someone wanting to know exactly when this story took place. After these things, how long after? A week after? A month after? Two years after? John doesn't say. He just says, after these things. I think it's safe to assume it wasn't more than a month or so after Jesus had appeared to Thomas. But John doesn't say precisely. And I think there's a reason that John doesn't say precisely. When John says, after these things, it sounds as if this story could have taken place at any time. And that is precisely the point. This encounter, this kind of encounter with Jesus can take place at any time. This doesn't happen on a very special occasion when the disciples were engaged in some extraordinary undertaking. The disciples were not at the height of religious ecstasy, nor were they in the depths of despair. Rather, it was a perfectly ordinary day, and they were going about some perfectly ordinary business. This is like a Tuesday morning story. There's nothing special about Tuesday morning, right? But here's the thing that God wants us to know through this story. Jesus doesn't just show up during those ecstatic Sunday morning worship services. Jesus doesn't just show up when you're doing extraordinary things for the kingdom. Even on a perfectly ordinary Tuesday morning, when you are going about your perfectly ordinary Tuesday morning business, Jesus is there. Jesus is there calling to you directing you. John tells us that several of the disciples, including Peter, Thomas, James, and John, and a handful of others, were gathered by the Sea of Galilee. They don't seem to be there for any particular purpose or with any sense of direction. Simon Peter decides to go fishing. The others decide to go with him. Nothing special about that. There has been much speculation over why the disciples were there, fishing on the Sea of Galilee once again, just like they had been before Jesus had called them three years earlier, telling them to leave their nets behind and come follow him. Some have suggested this was an act of apostasy, that the disciples had turned their backs on the commission given them by Jesus, that they chose to return to the relatively carefree life of an ordinary fisherman, rather than the troublesome, demanding, dangerous life of a disciple. Others suggest that the return to their previous way of life represents their aimlessness. Without Jesus telling them exactly where to go and what to do, they were lost. So they reverted to the only thing they knew how to do on their own, the only way of life that they had known before Jesus came along, fishing. 
Others might point out that in the Gospel of Matthew, the risen Christ instructed the disciples to go into Galilee, saying that they would see him there. It could be that the disciples were following Jesus' directions, going back to Galilee to wait for him there. And while they were waiting, they decided to go fishing. Why not? What else were they supposed to do while they were waiting? All of these suggestions are mere speculation. The truth is we don't know exactly why the disciples were back at the Sea of Galilee. Perhaps it's not all that important to know why they were there. Neither the Gospel writer John nor Jesus seem particularly concerned about that detail. John, who throughout his Gospel makes numerous side comments about the inner motivations of various people, makes no such comment here. And when Jesus appears on the scene, he doesn't chastise them, he doesn't praise them, he doesn't address why they are there in any way. What he does address is what they are doing, fishing. And more specifically, he addresses the fact that they are failing at it. Children, you have no fish, have you? That's the first thing that Jesus said to them before they even recognized who he was. Children... You have no fish, have you? They confessed that they had none. Then Jesus told them to cast the net out on the other side of the boat and they would find some there, so they did. If that story has a familiar ring to it, it should. This isn't the first time this has happened. Luke tells the story of when the disciples first met Jesus three years earlier. They had been out fishing all night and caught nothing. Jesus got into the boat with Peter, James, and John. He taught for a while, and then he told them to cast the nets out again. They said that they had been trying all night with no success, but they would follow his command. They did as he said, and the catch of fish that they brought in was so large it almost sank their boat. They had to call over a second boat, and the catch almost sank both boats. There were so many fish. That was when Jesus had told them, from now on, I will make you fishers of people. Now, here they are three years later, back on the same lake, out fishing once again. Once again, they try all night and catch nothing. All these stories of the disciples fishing all night and catching nothing, I have to wonder how they ever managed to survive before Jesus came along. Then again, Maybe the fact that they were so often unsuccessful shows that they were in the wrong profession all along. God had something different for them to do. Sometimes when business isn't going the way you think it should, it's because you're in the wrong business. God had something different in mind. I have to wonder if when Jesus, whom they didn't yet recognize, called out to them saying, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some, I have to wonder if there wasn't something within the disciples that said, you know, I think we've been in this story before. Perhaps they did. Perhaps that's why they didn't question what Jesus told them to do this time. They just did it. And I have to wonder if when they caught so many fish in the net that that they weren't able to haul it in, they remembered the time that the catch was so large it almost sank two boats. Perhaps they did. Perhaps that's why they finally recognized it was the Lord standing there on the beach giving them their orders. 
And I have to wonder if when they realized it was the Lord standing there on the beach, giving them their orders, if they remembered him saying those three years ago, I will make you fishers of people. I wonder if the thought finally clicked in their minds at that point. Oh, that's right. We had a job to do, didn't we? We've been sitting around here asking ourselves, now what? Wondering what comes next. And he already told us what comes next. He told us to go be fishers of people, to go out into the world casting the lifeline of the Holy Spirit and hauling people into God's kingdom. The next part of the story is filled with symbolism, the fish representing the people and the nations that the disciples are commissioned to bring in. There's a word that John uses twice in this passage. The word in Greek is helko. It gets translated as haul. The catch of fish was too large for them to haul it in. And then later, Peter hauls the net full of fish from the boat. There are two other times in the Gospel of John that John uses that same word, helko, both times on the lips of Jesus, both times referring to people being drawn to Jesus. In John 6:44, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless drawn, helko, hauled in by my Father who sent me. In John 12:32, Jesus said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw, helko, all people to myself. The fact that the disciples' action is described using the same word as is used for bringing people to Jesus, that's significant. But more than that, there is the number of fish. John tells us the exact number of fish hauled in, 153. The church has long recognized that there is significance to that number. John never gives us that kind of a detail for no reason. There's always symbolism behind it. The early church father, Jerome, in the second century noted that at the time that this story took place, in the zoological catalog of that day, there were exactly 153 different kinds of fish. 153 varieties of fish known in the world at that time. The disciples, following Jesus' command, haul in 153 fish. I will make you fishers of men. Go into all the world. Make disciples of every nation. It all comes together, doesn't it? The catch of every kind of fish represents the fact that people from every nation, all races, all classes, all varieties of people will be hauled into the kingdom of God when the followers of Jesus follow what Jesus tells them to do. But apart from following what Jesus commands, they can do nothing. Remember, before Jesus showed up, they caught nothing. You have no fish, have you? And then when they did catch the fish, before they recognized Jesus, they couldn't haul the catch in. They weren't strong enough. But once they acknowledged Jesus as Lord, Peter went and hauled the net full of fish off the boat all by himself. How could he do that? He did that by the power of Jesus, the power of Jesus for the church. 
the power of Jesus for the church is also shown in the net. Listen to this last little detail that John gives us about the catch of fish in the net. He says that even though there were so many fish, the net was not torn. The net was not torn. When we truly depend upon Jesus, the church is big enough and strong enough to hold all of those who will follow Christ. All of them. No exceptions. No matter their differences in appearance or nationality or ethnicity or language or family of origin or educational level or economic condition or or social status, the church of Jesus Christ is big enough for everyone. William Barclay writes of this passage, here John is telling us, the embrace of the church is as universal as the love of God in Jesus Christ. The embrace of the church is as universal as the love of God in Jesus Christ. Now, this appearance of Jesus goes on for the rest of that day, for the rest of chapter 21. There's a lot of good stuff in it that we're not going to get to this morning. I encourage you to listen to Jeff's sermon uh, this week. I I think that he is focusing on the second half of the chapter, so you can get the rest of the story from him. For right now, though, I want to go back to this idea of what comes next. Now what? Once the big, dramatic church service has ended... Once the exciting gathering has come to a close, once we're back home again in our comfortable surroundings and our familiar routines, once Tuesday morning comes around and there's nothing much special going on, Jesus is still there. Jesus is still there, still calling to us. He's still inviting us, encouraging us, leading us, reminding us that we have a commission to fulfill, telling us to continue casting out the net. Because your biggest impact is not going to be on the person sitting next to you in church on Sunday morning. It's going to be the person sitting at the desk next to yours on Tuesday or the family living next door to you, or the lady waiting on you at the restaurant, or the man standing in line behind you at the grocery store. God has surrounded us in our daily living with people that he wants to draw into his kingdom, and he has sent us out to spread the word and to live in such a way that is captivating and inviting. That is what causes the church to grow. That is what will cause this church to grow when we trust God and follow Jesus and haul in the catch that he is providing.